If you have your copy of the scriptures, you can turn to 1 Peter. We're continuing in our series through Peter's first epistle. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there are some stacked up on the table over there, which you are more than welcome to uh, make use of. Take one, use it here, take it home. <clears throat> First Peter 1, and this is our third week, actually, in verses 13 to 21. I told you at the beginning I was going to try and just do this as a sermon, and then I got into it, and I was like, nah, this is three sermons. So we're, at, we're in the third of those sermons. So listen as I read. You guys there? You with me? Okay. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially and according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the perishable blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Would you pray with me one more time? Lord, we tremble to come to you in prayer, and now, Lord, would you help us to tremble before your word? This is your word. It is infallible, authoritative, and perfectly sufficient for us. So would you nourish us now in your word? Feed us encourage us, and above all, would you help us to see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. In 1999, Barry Glasner first published his best-selling book, The Culture of Fear. Did anyone read that book by any chance? No, okay, so I can say whatever I want about this book. The Culture of Fear, uh, in this book, he argues that politicians and media and advocacy groups are knowingly manipulating the fears of Americans for their own gain. Now, whether you agree with that argument or not, uh, the book was and remains, there's actually been three editions that have gone on. He's, he's, he's published more editions and talked about more things since 1999. Uh, it was a very popular book. It remains a very popular book. Uh, and that's because he is at least right about one thing. We are afraid. Corrupt government officials, deadly viruses, nuclear weapons, social upheaval, biological warfare, economic collapse. Uh, the average person scrolls the news and is pierced with fear. And sadly, the same is true for many Christians. 
And, and for many of you in this, mor- in this room this morning, you live much of your life afraid. Maybe it's not geopolitical conflict. Maybe it's your kids getting sick. Maybe it's a fear of the people you're closest to dying. Maybe it's a fear that you won't have enough money in the future. Whatever it is, could be a bunch of other things as well. Whatever it is, when that fear strikes, it paralyzes you. Your chest tightens, your, your breath goes shallow, your mouth is dry, you, you run it through in your head over and over again, and you grow anxious, and you fidget, and you're restless. You can't settle down. You, you know what the most often repeated command in all the Scriptures is? Do not be afraid. And what that tells me at least is that fear is a temptation that is common to everyone. And we need to be reminded how, that we, how, how, how to overcome this fear a lot. What does the Bible give as the remedy for living in fear? Well, the answer actually might surprise you. Uh, as we continue through Peter's first epistle, uh, let, re- let me remind you that he's writing to Christians who are increasingly experiencing persecution and suffering and pain, and I don't think it's a great leap to assume that many of them were afraid. In fact, I think we have reason to believe it explicitly because Peter, in chapter 3, uh, verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Puts his finger on fear. Now, Peter's concern as he writes to these brothers and sisters is that they would be equipped to live godly lives in a way that commends Christ while they remain here in this world as sojourners as, and, and exiles, and while they live in a world where there are lots of reasons legitimately to be afraid. You'll remember from the last two weeks that I told you Peter is trying to answer this question. In light of the hope that we have laid up for us, how should we live? And I told you he gives three commands, three imperatives that are to characterize our life as Christians while we are here, while we are remaining as pilgrims on our way to the heavenly city. He says our lives should be marked by a disciplined hope. That was two weeks ago. A deliberate holiness. That was last week. And then by a diligent fear. That's this week. Look at verse 17. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, Peter's answer for fear, the remedy for Peter, for fear, is fear. Were you expecting that? Peter's answer for fear is fear. But not just any fear, a fear of the Lord the fear of God, a proper fear. That's what I want us to focus on this morning, the fear of the Lord. How do we conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile? So let's, this morning, let's look at the nature of fear. What is it? The life of fear. How does it work? And then the fountain of fear. Where does it come from? Let's look at the nature of fear. 
Uh, in one of his songs, singer-songwriter John Mayer writes, fear is a friend who's misunderstood. Now, I highly doubt he was singing about the fear of the Lord, <laughs> but he might as well have been because that's how a lot of Christians relate to the fear of the Lord. They're like, oh, I'm going to put out the fear of the Lord, and many of you are like, mm-hmm, that's biblical, I know that. That's good, I know that, but what is it? How does it work? It's like this mysterious force, this mysterious thing in us. We don't know how the fear of the Lord, we, we, we have a hard time figuring out like, what actually is it and how does it work in our lives. Now, if you go to the Bible, like Webster's Dictionary, and try and look up like, a definition of the fear of God, you'll probably come away even more confused than when you started because the Bible speaks of this fear in so many different ways. Uh, let me give you a sampling. If you wanted to do like a massive Bible study, if you are like a Bible nerd and you just really want to do a massive study, do a study on the fear of the Lord. It would be, it would be really worth your, worth your while. But let me give you just a sampling. The fear of the Lord is described in terms of awe, obedience, dread, delight, terror, hope, Honor, surprise, trust, love, and a lot more ways. And so we're left going, so what is it? What is the fear of the Lord? And, and Peter is a huge help to us here because he boils it down to two realities. He says, the fear of the Lord is when you know God in two ways simultaneously. The fear of the Lord is when you know God in two ways simultaneously. Look at verse 17 again. He says, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. A right fear of the Lord, a biblical fear of the Lord, is to know God simultaneously both as judge and as father. Do you know what the fear of the Lord is? It is to know God simultaneously both as judge and as father. You see, Peter says to these Christians, if you call on him, that is, if you invoke this God as your father who judges, conduct yourself with fear. To fear the Lord is to know him both as a judge and as a father. Now let's look at both of them individually and then we'll put it all together. So first to fear the Lord is to know him as judge. To know God is a judge. In other words, it is to know the greatness, the holiness, the righteousness, the justice, and the power of God. It is to know him as the creator of all things. It is to know him as your creator, as your maker, and to know that before him you are utterly poor and naked, that you stand before him completely accountable for the life that he has given to you and for the life that he sustains. It is to stand before him in all, listen, are you listening to me? 
It is to stand before him in all his glory and majesty like a little ant on the seashore as a mile-high tidal wave is about to crash. It is to feel in your soul how absolutely awesome and exalted God is and how utterly insignificant and minuscule you are. Throughout the scriptures, we find that when people, when God gives people like a glimpse of himself, they are often overcome with fear and dismay. When Joshua is confronted by the Lord dressed for battle, he falls to his face and worship, worships. Uh, when, the law, when the Lord appears to Daniel, uh, he says, I was frightened and I fell on my face. Uh, do you remember when John the apostle receives his vision? Right, the book of Revelation, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Or uh, the prophet Habakkuk. Trev did a, a, a series through the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is confronted with the judgment of God, and he prays to the Lord. And he begins that prayer saying, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In his prayer, he recounts God's judgment. He says, you marched through the earth in fury. You stripped the sheath from your bow. The mountains saw you and writhed. The sun and mood stood still. And then he prays this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. It is to know God as judge. It is to stand before him in all his greatness. To truly know God is to know him first as as judge. And it is to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. Sometimes people, when they talk about the fear of the Lord, they're like, it's not not like we're afraid of him. Like, mom, that's not what the Bible says. To stand before God in all of his power, in all of his might, it is to feel in some way a kind of terror, a dread, a fear, to be frightened. But to fear God is not only to know him as judge. To fear him as Peter spoke of a a biblical, a right fear of the Lord, you have to know him as judge, but you have to also simultaneously know him as father. To know him as father is to know his goodness, is to know his love, is to know his forgiveness, his grace, his kindness, his delight. And you can see this a couple places in the scripture. And I, like, I wonder if, if, we've, if we've thought about the fear of the Lord in this way. But you can see it very clear. Um, Psalm 33, 18. Listen, to, uh, you can turn there if you want, but let me just read it. It says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. You see, those things are put parallel. Fearing, in other words, fearing him is to hope in his steadfast love. How can the, the psalmist say uh, to fear 
and to hope, and it's they're one and the same. They are the same thing. You see, the Scriptures teach that the right fear of the Lord comes not only when we are overwhelmed by a sense of God's majesty and greatness, but when we are overwhelmed by a sense of His grace and loving kindness. Did you hear what I just said? A fear, a proper fear of the Lord comes not only when we are overwhelmed by a sense of His majesty and His greatness, but when we are overwhelmed by a sense of His grace and loving kindness. In Jeremiah 33, God comes to His sinful people and He promises peace. His people that have gone astray, who have not feared Him, and He promises peace. In Jeremiah 33, 8, li- listen to this. This is God speaking. He says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall, shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall, listen to this, they shall fear and tremble because of all the good I will do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good I will do for them. You see, what's producing this fear and trembling? It's the, it's the goodness of God. It's His grace. It's, it's His undeserved blessing. It's the logic behind the verse that, that Brian read in Psalm 130. He says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Did you catch that? With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, to fear the Lord is to come into loving relationship with the God of the universe. And look at those two things. Like, how do those two things go together? You, in loving relationship with the God of the universe, the maker of all things. Did you notice in Deuteronomy 10, look in your bulletin, look, this is all over the scripture. Once, this is like one of those things, like once you see it, you're not going to be able to unsee it. You can see it everywhere. Deuteronomy 10. You got your bulletin? Okay, look there. You see, he says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? And then throughout the rest of that section, he bounces back and forth between the majesty and the greatness of God and the love of God. Because in, to fear the Lord is you need both. Look, he says, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth what is all, and all that is in it. What is that? The, it's greatness. It's to know God as judge. It's to know him as, as matchless and mighty and great and holy. And then he says, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. You see, do you see, you see the two things there. The Lord over the heaven of the heavens and earth and all that, and he set his love on you. Look, keep going. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. And what are those great and terrifying things? He rescued them. He saved them. 
In love, he redeemed them and delivered them out of Egypt. Do you, do you see the two things that are there, both? The greatness and the matchless might of God and his love for them. You can't, listen, you, you have to have both. Do you, see, look, do you know what happens if you only have one? See, think about it. What happens if you only have God as judge? This is how some of you relate to God, by the way. Some of you, in your mind, you only have God as judge, and so God is up in heaven, and he's down there, and he's scowling at you. He's just disappointed, and he's ready to just drop the hammer. And that's because you know him as judge. That's what you get. You get a harsh tyrant. When you only know God as judge, you view him as a harsh tyrant. But what about on the other side? There are some people, and this is some of, this is some of you, some of you only know him as father. And what you get is like a cosmic Santa Claus in the sky. He's like, a, he's like a nice old man, and he just exists to like give you stuff. Does he care about your sin? Nah, not really. He forgives. That's his job. That's what he does. He just, he's just nice. You only get a proper fear of the Lord when these things come together. When you have a great and mighty God that the angels cover their eyes and cover their feet because he's too holy to come close to. And yet at the same time, pours out his love and grace and kindness to sinners. You need to know him as judge and father. You need to know him as righteous and redeemer. You need to know him in his holiness and in his help. You need to know him as perfect and patient. You need to know him, we sang this, you need to know him as strong and kind. You need to know him as mighty and meek. You need to know him as jealous and gentle. You need to know him as the God who is far off, who is totally other than you, and at the same time, the God who draws near and is close to you. You need to know him as the God who is powerful beyond your imagination and tender. These two things, they shouldn't go together. Right? The greatness of God in loving relationship, and yet, if you are here this morning trusting in Christ, both of those things come together in him. You have God as, as judge, this great God as your father. And so we ought to fear. Now, now, what is that fear? Remember, I'm trying to get at the nature of this fear. Like, what is this fear? How do we put these two realities together? I have like, I had a lot of illustrations come to mind. If you want to hear more of them, just ask me. I've got, I've got some Lord of the Rings. I've got some C.S. Lewis. But the one that came to mind that I'm, I'm going to uh, share with you is um, I was struck recently by a video that I saw. I don't usually give sports illustrations. And this really isn't a sports illustration. It will help if you're familiar, but I, I, I think it'll do the, do the trick. I was struck by uh, some video footage of Jason Kelsey. Do you know who Jason Kelsey is? Jason Kelsey is the starting center for the Philadelphia Eagles. So he's, if you're not a football person, he's the guy that snaps the ball and starts the play. He's a big lineman. His job is to just push big guys around. Okay? Um, there was some footage of him uh, on, like, after practice. And he's there. He, he doesn't have, like, his shoulder pads on, but he's got, like, his, his, his you know, pads on and his cleats and everything. And he's, it's like, you know, like a sleeveless shirt there. And he's, like rolling around on the field in the grass, like playing with his kids. Like throw, like he's got little kids and he's like throwing them up in, up in the air and like they're laughing and giggling. And I thought, man, what a wonderful picture of our relationship to the Lord. You see, here is a man 
who has made a living, a good living, out of being big enough and strong enough and aggressive enough to go toe-to-toe with massive defensive linemen so he can bench press and squat like hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And if he chose to, he could crush his children without skipping a beat. Like without even trying, without breaking a sweat, he could just crush his children. But how does he make use of all of that strength and all of that power and all of that force? He, because of the Lord. Yeah, but how, how does, what does he do with all of that? He, he rolls around in the grass and throws his kids up so that they can giggle and laugh and enjoy time with their dad. Do you see see what I'm getting at? How how does he make use of all that strength and power, the same power that he uses on Sunday afternoon to drive 350-pound men into the ground? He uses it to throw his daughters up in the air so that they can have fun, so that they can know their father's love. You see, and how do you think how do you think his daughters feel about their dad? Like they, I mean, I understand they're little, and they probably can't fully grasp like how big their dad is, like in relationship to other people, right? But to them, he's Superman. Like he's more powerful than anything in the world, and yet because he's their father, they know he will never use his power to harm them or hurt them, but only to protect them, only to help them. And so when we see this greatness, when, when, when his daughters see this greatness, they aren't repelled by it. They're actually drawn in because of it. And so it is with us and the Lord. He is our judge and our father. And so we fear him. And that's how the Bible can speak of the fear of the Lord as both awe and dread and love and trust. I'm going to give you one more. I, I can't help but do the C.S. Lewis one. I'll do it quick. Do you remember when Beaver, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, do you remember when, when uh, Susan and Lucy come to Beaver, and Mr. Beaver, and, and Susan and Lucy are like, you know, who is Aslan? And, and, and they're like, a lion. And they're like, well, well, is he safe? And do you remember Mr. Beaver's answer? He's like, is he safe? What kind of question is that? He's a lion for crying out loud. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is the fear of the Lord. It's these two things together, greatness and goodness. It's when we come to know God both as great and as good. That's why, that's why C.S. Lewis, why do you think he depicts the Lord as a lion? Because he, there's something frightening about a lion. He's, he can, if he wants to, he can rip you from, you know, shred you into pieces. And yet, we know him as good and is gracious and kind. Okay, so that's the nature of fear. So much more to be said. I I can give you more illustrations. The nature of fear. What about the life of fear? How does this fear work? What what happens in our lives when we have this fear of God? You see, a, a right fear of the Lord changes everything about how we live our lives in the world. And let there's there's I could just give you so many examples, but let me just give you two. Uh one is it creates in us a fearless humility. What does, what does a fear of the Lord actually produce in, in people? It produces a fearless humility. Remember when I said Peter's answer to fear is fear? 
See, what a right fear of the Lord does is it actually produces in us a fearless humility. So um, look again at the text, verse 17. It says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. See, why do you think Peter attaches to this command to conduct themselves with fear a reminder of their status as exiles? He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, because he knows the temptation to be afraid when you are far away from home. You know it. You've been far away from home, and something goes wrong, and you're struck with fear. You're away from your support network. You're away from what's familiar. You're away from your people. And Peter knows that environment in many ways, uh, the environment of these people and our environment in, as Christians is, is an environment away from our home. Right? We are exiles, sojourners, strangers in a foreign land, and so we live in a world that is largely opposed to the faith in Christ living in a world where it will potentially cost us to live as followers of Christ. And, and here is Peter's answer to the distress and the fear that reality brings. He says, fear, conduct yourselves with fear. Fear the Lord. Because he, why does he say that, by the way? Because he knows how our hearts work. And here's how our hearts work. When we are afraid, when we are afraid, you need to know that something bigger than your fears is on your side. When you're afraid, what you need to know is that something bigger than your fears is on your side. The psalmist writes, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or again, Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, what do you need when you are afraid? Remember, I'm asking the question, how does this fear work? How does the fear of the Lord work in our lives? What is it that you need when you are afraid because you look out on the world and what you see is frightening things? When, when your doctor gives you a frightening diagnosis, when you get another bill that you don't have the money to pay, when your kids come home and say, I don't feel good, when your future feels like it's in the hands of evil people. When the uncertainty of your future is crippling. In those moments, what do you need? Peter's answer is that you need to know something infinitely bigger than those fears is on your side. Do you remember there is a scene in the Gospels? Uh, where Jesus takes his disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee and a massive storm blows through. And there's Jesus and he's sleeping. Do you remember that? And the disciples, the storm is, is, you know, has come up and the winds, the, the waves are breaking over the bow of the boat and they're, you know, paddling water out of the boat. And eventually they wake Jesus up and they're like, Jesus, we're perishing. Don't you even care about us? And do you remember what happens? With one word, Jesus is just like, peace, be still. And, and, and the entire sea is calm. The winds cease. But he, this is what I love. I, I, I just love how this story ends. In, in Mark chapter 4, so after that happens, so there they are. So like this thing has happened, right? 
They're on the verge of death. They're on the verge of their boat capsizing and sinking. And Jesus is like, peace be still. And now they're just there on the boat. Like there's no waves and they're just sitting there. And there's Jesus. And Jesus is like, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? You see, in the, the, the way the story begins, the disciples are petrified. They're so afraid. They're afraid because the, the, the waves are going to capsize the boat because they're going to die. And do you know how the story ends? They're afraid. But they're afraid of something different now. And that fear has absolutely cast out any fears they had of the waves. Now they are standing in awe of the one who has the ability to command the storm. You see, when you are filled with the fear of the Lord, you are strengthened to face anything that the world throws at you because you know you have God, you have the maker and the ruler of the universe on your side. But notice this knowledge of God, this knowledge of God that is that God is on our side. It does not puff us up. It, it, it makes us humble. We, we become fearless and we become humble. You see, in the world, normally those two things don't go together. See, in the world, fearless people tend to be arrogant. If you've known fearless people, they tend to be arrogant. They tend, tend to be haughty. They tend to be conceited. And the people who are humble tend to be timid and fearful. But when we are filled with the fear of the Lord, we actually become people who are both fearless and humble. So look, at verse 17 again, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Lots of reasons to be afraid. He says, you don't need to be afraid because, because you have the fear of the Lord. But then he says, verse 18, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. You know God as both judge and father. You know he's on your side, and yet you know that God is not on your side because you're something special. God is on your side because he ransomed you out of your sin. He ransomed you from foolishness, from futility. He's on your side by grace. He's on your side despite the fact that you were his enemy, that left to yourself you would walk in the ways of your fathers in futility and sin and rebellion. But God ransomed you from that by his own power and love. And there's actually a little play on words in the the passage. He says, if you call on him, uh, do you remember that in the beginning? Uh, if you call on him as father who judges impartially. So do you remember last week? It's as he who called you is holy. See, that, like I'm kind of taking this in three sections, but you kind of have to read it all together. Wherever you see God calling, it's God's saving work. And so Peter's point is, you might be the one who is calling on him as father, but the only reason you're calling on him as father is because he first called you. Be humble. These things, uh, fearlessness and humility, only come together when we know the grace of fearing the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, there is both the realization that we stand like that ant on the shore standing and gazing up at a, at, a mile high, at a mile high tidal wave of majesty and beauty and that we deserve to be crushed under the weight of it 
which absolutely humbles us. But at the same time, we see God who used all of that power. Like, you know, like Jason Kelsey, this powerful lineman who uses all of his power with his children to love them. That all of that force was used to bring about our good. So the first thing a fear of the Lord does is it creates in us a fearless humility. But here's the second thing. It creates in us a trembling joy. A trembling joy. Imagine you get home and in your mailbox you find an envelope. Okay, we're playing the pretend game. Are you with me? Okay, imagine you get home from the church service this morning and, and in your home you find a mailbox. Uh, you, yeah, you find an envelope. And in that envelope is a bona fide invitation to have dinner at the personal home of whatever famous public figure you admire most. You know, maybe you get an invitation to have dinner at Jason Kelsey's house, or you get an invitation, since they're in the news, to have dinner at Taylor Swift's house, or whatever. What's happening in your heart when you read that invitation? Like, you open that invitation, you know, this is a real deal. I've been invited, I don't know, you know, pick your figure. I've been invited to sit across the table from X person. What are you feeling? Isn't it a mixture of joy and fear? You're petrified to go, but you can't bear the thought of not going because of how exciting it is. And how much more is that the case when you realize that we have been invited not merely into the home of some earthly celebrity, but into closest relationship with God? You know, in Isaiah 60, the the Lord speaks of a day when God will invite the nations to come to him. And when those who are far off will come in as sons and daughters. And in verse 5, he says, in that day, then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exalt. But actually, probably a better way to translate that is your heart will tremble and grow wide. Your heart will tremble and grow wide. In other words, at the sight and in the experience of God's salvation, your heart will tremble with joy. Look, Peter tells us in our passage this morning that that long-awaited day has come. Verse 20, he says, He, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. See, in, in Christ... We, we come to know God both as judge and father, and this day in which that God invites us into relationship with him has come, and we tremble with joy. There is this close connection between fear and joy. Normally, I put in the back of the bulletin, like we have this like why we do that section, but if you notice, uh, this week I put a poem. It's a poem called The Fear of God by a theologian named F.W. Faber. I'm not going to read this whole thing to you. But listen to some of these verses. There is no joy the soul can meet upon life's various road like the sweet fear that sits and shrinks under the eye of God. There's no joy. He says there's no joy the soul can meet like sitting in fear beneath the eye of God. 
A special special joy is in all love for objects we revere. Thus, joy in God will always be proportioned to our fear. Think about that. But fear is love, and love is fear, and in and out they move. But fear is an intenser joy than mere unfrightened love. You see what he's saying? What is it to come into relationship with the God of the universe? It is to fear. It is to tremble. And yet at the same time, it is to be thrilled. It is to be filled with such such exultation and intense joy. So that's the nature of fear, and that's what, that's what the fear of the Lord does in our own lives. And, and just for a minute, can you imagine, like, we're going to keep going through Peter's epistle, and he's going to talk about the way in which the church is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness, and how they're called to be lights in a dark place, and all of this. But, like, can you see how this works? Like, can you, like, what if we actually feared the Lord the way I'm talking about, such that we embodied a fearless humility and a trembling joy, and then you pick that up and drop that down into the world in which we're living. People would go, what is happening with you? What do you have? What is that? Because I'm looking around, and, and, and I'm terrified. I'm petrified at what's going on. But here, you, you, you seem to, to just be walking through life with this kind of fearlessness. But you don't hold it over people. You're not arrogant about it. And you have this like, this like impenetrable joy that just keeps growing. Like where is that coming from? Can you imagine what would happen if we feared the Lord the way the scriptures? Okay, so look, that's the nature of fear, the life of fear. But what about the fountain of fear? Like where does this fear come from? Like, where, where do we get it? How do we, how do we become people who fear the Lord? The Proverbs 14, 27 says, 27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Yeah, where does this fountain spring from? Well, let me ask you, where do we see the reality of God as both judge and father most clearly? You see it at the cross. You see it at the cross. You see, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He's saying, conduct yourselves with fear, knowing, like, how do I conduct myself with fear? He's like, hey, remember that you were ransomed, that you were bought with the precious blood of Christ, and then you'll fear. Why is that? It's because at the cross, more than anywhere else, we come to see God as both Father, uh, as both Judge and Father. It's at the cross He is portrayed for us most clearly as great and awesome and as gracious and kind. Peter says, "You are ransomed with the blood of Christ." What is a ransom? A ransom is a payment of debt 
to set another free. And you see, before God, you are a guilty criminal before the holy bench of his judgment, and so you are bound to your debt. And can I, can I just talk to you for a moment, especially if you're here and you are not a Christian, you are not a believer, you're not someone who's professed faith in Christ, but you're exploring, you're looking. Let me talk to you for just a second. But also if you're a Christian and you, and you haven't thought deeply about what sin really is. See, sometimes people think what sin is, is just like breaking rules. Like, God, here are the rules, here are the commandments, and when you break them, when you transgress the rules, you're a sinner. And that is true, but that's not really what's at the very epicenter of what sin is. See, when, in Paul, when Paul is trying to explain what sin is, he, and he goes in this long diatribe in Romans. Romans 1, 2, 3, he's just building this case that all men are sinful. And do you know how he sums it all up? Do you remember that train in Romans 3 where he's like, you know, no one does good, no one seeks for God. Do you know how he ends it? Does anyone know how he ends it? There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's how, you, that's how you can sum up what sin is. See, y- y- your sin is not just that you're like, you know, overly critical or that you're like mean or unkind or that you've got lust or it's, it's not just those things. So you see, what sin is, is that you don't fear the Lord. You don't fear him. You don't marvel at his beauty and his greatness. You don't revere him. You don't honor him. Look, I'm talking about something in your heart. You look at God and you don't fall to your face and worship him. You don't stand before him in fear and tremble. You don't stand before him in awe. You don't stand before him in dread. You don't stand before him and say, all I can do is just praise you because of how beautiful you are. You don't stand before him and delight in all that he is. You don't stand before him and pour out your heart to him in just unfettered and unbridled love. You don't stand before him and just say, whatever you can just command me to do something, I trust you no matter what because I see how good and how beautiful and how wonderful you are. You don't fear him. That's what's at the bottom of it. And all of that, all the other stuff, all the rule breaking and the command breaking, it's just a symptom of this one thing, that you don't see him for who he is and you don't love him and you don't revere him and you don't honor him as God. That's what's at the bottom. And brothers and sisters, I told Brian this this morning, it is very hard to preach a sermon because I'm right there with you. I, I'm, I'm reading this and going, I don't fear the Lord. We don't fear the Lord. But here's what Peter is saying. He's saying that on the cross, Jesus bound himself to your sin. That that lack of fear of the Lord, Jesus took the debt for that upon himself. He took on himself the penalty of your sin and said to God, charge the debt to my account. I will pay it. And at the cross, we find out what it means for God to be a holy judge who cannot allow sin to go unpunished, and it should fill us with fear. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And and look, every religion has its its Messiah, like its, its leader, and they all die courageously and fearlessly. Did you ever know that? Like, you know, the Buddha and, and, and like they all die, uh, like Socrates, they all die courageously and bravely. And even Jesus' followers, by the way, 
Like Jesus' followers, do you know how many stories there are of martyrs who just go to their death like singing hymns, like even t- like taunting the people that are like, you know, they're on the burn, they're, they're like getting burned and they're like, hey, the fire's not big enough. Do you mean to tell me that somehow they were able to be more courageous in their death than Jesus was? Like what is Jesus doing on the night before he dies? He's cowering in fear. He's in the dirt. He's sweating drops of blood. He's filled with anxiety and fear. Is that because somehow, like, these other people are more courageous than he was? No. It's because what he's facing in his death is infinitely more than any of those other people. What he's facing in his death, in the garden, his father holds out to him the cup of his wrath, the cup of his judgment for you, not fearing the Lord, not honoring and revering him as God. He holds out the the cup to his son, and he says, smell it. Look at it. Start to taste it. And when Jesus looks into that cup, he looks into what it will be like to take upon the sin of of those he came to save, and to know God as judge and only as judge. That's what happens on the cross. You realize that? Like on the cross, he, he, he hangs and he knows God only as a judge. He's forsaken by his father. His father shuts him out. He's there. He doesn't leave. He leaves him as a father, but he is very present as a judge. And as a judge, he pours out all of his wrath, all of his anger, all of that power, that mile-high tidal wave of holiness and justice and judgment comes crashing down on Jesus Christ and smashes him into the dust instead of you. He's standing in your place. Hey, that old African spiritual, it's exactly right. You, 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 I'm sure you know it. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they pierced him in his side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. You see, the cross, we are... Look, how do we get this, this humility... And at the same time, this affirmation of God's love, it's at the cross. At the cross, we're humbled into the dust because our hearts are filled with fear at the greatness and majesty and holiness of God. At the cross, we see really the ugliness of our sin and the holiness of God. And yet at the very same time, at the exact same moment that we are seeing God's holiness in crushing sin put on display, we are also seeing the immensity of our Father's love for us and His grace toward us and His kindness toward us. You see, do do you know what it cost God to pay this debt? That tidal wave couldn't have just crashed down on a person or even an angel. That tidal wave of His justice had to crash down upon His only Son, the precious blood, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was perfect. He was holy. He feared the Lord without fail. 
and yet God's justice fell upon him. It wasn't mere silver or gold. You could stack up all the riches that this world has to offer on one side of the scale and stack on the other side of the scale. Jesus and Jesus would actually break the scale through the floor. They don't even compare to how valuable Christ is. And here's what Peter's trying to say. He's saying, do you see how much your heavenly father loves you? There was nothing he was not willing to give to rescue you. He sacrificed his own spotless, perfect son like an innocent lamb without blemish or spot to rescue you from the judgment you rightly deserve. Brothers and sisters, he, he loves you. The God of the universe loves you. You, me. You see, before the cross, we are driven into the ground at the sight of our sin and God's holiness. But at the very same time, we are exalted into the clouds because at the cross, every doubt that God loves us is forever silenced. At the cross, we see God's power and majesty and justice on display. But instead of using, look, instead of using his might to crush us like, he des like we deserve, he uses it to love us, to rescue us, to raise us up. At once we are terrified at the sight of the cross, but at the very same time, we hear God's voice of love ringing out saying, I love you. And in holy fear, we run to him that he might embrace us forever. This is the fountain of fear. This is where the fear of the Lord comes from. Christ crucified for sinners. And when that fear comes alive in your heart, it expels all other fears. Do you hear what I'm saying? When the fear of the Lord, when you stand at the foot of the cross and see God as a perfect judge and a father who loves you, it expels all other fears. At the cross, we are assured beyond all our doubts that God, who is the maker, sustainer, and ruler of all, is on our side, and so we are not afraid. So conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Live lives of fearless humility and trembling joy in a world filled with people who are absolutely overwhelmed with fear. And brothers and sisters, because he died for us, because he brought us near and reconciled us to the eternal God who is now our heavenly father, we have this hope that one day we will see him perfectly and our hearts will be per perfected in the fear of him. Listen to this last verse of that poem. Our blessedness will be to bear the sight of thee so near, and thus eternal love will be but the ecstasy of fear. That's our hope. And because we have that fear, there is nothing in this life or in this world that can make us afraid. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, uh, we pray that you would indeed work in us by your spirit a fear of the Lord. We confess we don't fear you as we ought to. Drive us to the cross that, that we might see your greatness, your, your holiness, but at the same time, your grace and kindness to us in Jesus. Help us, Lord, we pray. Make us people who fear you for our joy, for our good in you and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.